In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Mike. Um, <laughs> I just need to do some setting up, so I'm going to leave you with half of a joke, and I'll tell you the, end, the second half at the end. Um, what game do you play with a wombat? Cool. So, um, uh, what game do you play with the wombat? Anyone? A wom. Um, <laughs> you'll get it on the way home, promise. Um, <laughs> someone's got it. Anyway, um, right, sorry, I'm going to have to speed up a bit because we had an amazing time this morning, didn't we? So I'm going to try and not keep us here till three. Um, and I can't promise anything. Um, my name is Phil, um, and there's a whole load of new faces, which is wonderful. So if you've not met me before, that's who I am. Um, and if you didn't find that joke funny, you might struggle with some other comedy <laughs> in the next while. Um, I need to start with two apologies. Number one, um, those of you part of our Facebook community group will see I, before I do a sermon, I give everyone the text I'm going to teach from. But I also suggested I was going to bring hammer and Easter eggs. That illustration got cut, unfortunately, in the final edit. So some of you have been eating the props um, that I brought, but I replaced it with another one, so that's okay. This one's a lot more messy and might go wrong. So that's one apology. Second apology is there's someone here who uh, I've had the privilege of, of praying for for a few times and speak to him. And when I spoke to him last week, he said to me, um, sometimes your sermons are quite long and quite complicated. And I said, I really promise I'll try and make this one not long and complicated. Um, I won't name the person, but I'm really sorry. This is not going to be my simple 20-minute sermon. Um, it's going to be really good, I hope, because um, there's so much amazing stuff. Um, but yeah, just an apology to that person that I promise I'll keep it uh, as you know, engaging as possible, obviously. And as people who know me preach, I've got plenty of illustrations. Um, but yes, that's an apology to, to them as well. So right, so as Steve said, we are starting week two of a series on the kingdom of God. Um, and frankly, this is really, really fun theology. Um, kind of puts a fun in foundational, if that works grammatically, which it doesn't really, but I thought about it and I thought I'd try it. Um, so <clears throat> some people here know about what Vineyard Institute is. Um, it's kind of the Vineyard's online theological training resource. And maybe around a year ago or so, a few of us went through the module on the kingdom of God. And for me personally, this was transformational, just understanding what the kingdom of God means, how vineyard theology uh, unpacks that in a way that I've never saw, seen before or heard before. And so a lot of the stuff I'm talking about here are going to be from my own kind of learning from that and stuff I've put together for here. So for anyone who is really interested in what we're going to go through, um, I just want to point you to a few resources, which I'll leave here afterwards. I'm not going to go through them in any detail. But the first one is um, this quite old book here called The Presence of the Future by George Eldon Ladd. Um, some people might know this book. This is the theologian who kind of inspired John Wimber with his theology, who put it into practice and kind of started the vineyard movement. So that's brilliant. This one is from the Vineyard Institute course, and there's a lot of stuff which I'll be covering, which is in here, which is called Breakthrough by Derek Morphew, who's a vineyard theologian. That's really good. And the last one, which I haven't quite finished yet, but I've read enough to do the sermon, is... <laughs> I'm only doing Old Testament today. Um, this is really, really good. For Tom Wright, otherwise known as N.T. Wright, called How God Became King, 
which is all about the kingdom. So there, um, I'm going to skip through a lot of stuff quite quickly. And through this series, other people are going to go into some of the things in more detail. But I'm hoping you're going to get an appetite for this stuff. And if you do, those are some of the things to go to. So, uh, so this is, I'm going to skip through the entire Old Testament as soon as possible, okay? <laughs> so the first part is basically going to be a little bit information, if that's the right word. I want to give you a lot of information. You don't need to remember it all, but the idea is I'm going to show you the narrative of the Old Testament in terms of the kingdom. And then we're going to finish on the personal and pastoral. So we have to start actually in the New Testament. So for the next slide... So these words are from Jesus, Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. So this is right at the start of the earliest gospel that we have recorded. And actually, these are some of the most important and powerful words in probably the entire Bible. But we don't actually tend to know why. And it looks a little bit like this. So I'm going to go off mic for a minute. When we read these words, at the start of our Gospels, and we read them simply into kind of an absence of understanding of the Old Testament, that's what happens. Nothing. It's completely inert. And the reason is, is picking up something exactly Steve said last week. He said, the the story of the kingdom in the Old Testament is there if you want to see it. Um. And if we look at it, and that's what we're going to see at today. And that's the context of which these words need to be understood. Um, so next, I did promise an eye test. So first, I'm going to give you all an eye test. <laughs> okay. So I, uh, I've never had the congregation read things out to me before, but I'm going to do it line by line, okay? So I'm the optometrist. It's a posh word for eye doctor. Um, so I want to, can you, who can, whoever can read it, can you read out the first line? What does it say? Excellent. We all kind of read that, but we can all see that bit. Can, who can read the second one? Read it out. People close to this one can no longer look at that screen, because this isn't going to work otherwise. So everyone look at this screen. <laughs> can you read the third line? Yeah, it's a bit quieter as if you can't hear. That's good. Uh, fourth line? Yeah, you can't read that, can you? It's too small. It's too small. Great. And the fifth line? Yeah, no, good, you can't hear it at all. So, yeah, stop, okay? You're ruining my whole message. Okay, so by the time I'm done, that's going to be crystal clear to you, okay? And that's the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. Okay, so we need to start at the start, or near the start anyway. So we come to the next slide, we start at Exodus. So what we're going to do this morning is this graph on the uh, left, axis my brain isn't really working today the one going upwards there we go um I, thank you very much i really should know that being like a researcher but my brain isn't working right now so on the y-axis the kingdom expectation that's going to go upwards and then along the bottom the x-axis uh, is going to have time through the old testament okay so we're going to start with the exodus i'm not going to go into any detail steve's going to talk a bit more about this next week but really simply sort of exodus god maybe he's not by the way he's looking at me <laughs> But that's fine. I'll recap it. So most of us, some of us, will know the story of Exodus. Uh, the Israelites were in um, captivity in Egypt. And um, God calls Moses to call his people out of Egypt. And it goes to Pharaoh. And there's a big fight, kind of a, a fight between God and Pharaoh, essentially, and the gods of Egypt. Um, and God brings his people out of Egypt. Um, and then they come out of Egypt, cross the Red Sea. Um, and God forms a covenant with his people. 
Um, won't go into details on that, but there's interesting stuff on that in the book. But if we go to the next slide, this is the bit that I want to show you. The first thing uh, I want to show you um, about the story in Exodus is about the people having a king. So this picture is a picture of the Israelite encampment. So this is after they come out of Exodus, um, they're being led by God, and this is the picture of their encampment. So I've helpfully put a big fat red arrow there. So that is where God placed himself. So that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, which had the Ten Commandments on it, and that represented the covenant, the relationship between God and his people. And then you can see around the edge, that's sort of the area which other people can't go into, the two tents at the front, um, the two small ones, I was going to point, but I'm not that tall, uh, where Aaron and Moses were, and around the outside is all the people, um, the Israelites. And the point here is this was symbolic, that not only was God their king, because he'd taken them out of Exodus and being the sovereign, but actually he was their king, and he was their king with them. Um, and this is quite unusual, the, the kings, sorry, not the kings, the gods, didn't, weren't known to dwell with their people. But Yahweh was a God who not only was a sovereign God, but he was a sovereign God with their people, and therefore he was going to be in the center of their encampment and be all part of their relationship with God and their relationship with his people. So um, the other interesting thing I thought about this is we obviously also know that then the Israelites spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness before they got to their promised land. And often we think that's because they were disobedient, and which is true. But when you see this picture, you think, imagine putting this campsite up every morning and every night. No wonder they were kind of annoyed and frustrated at God. That must have taken ages. Um, oh, put my camera on. It's a bad sign. Um, so that's the first thing we've got to find from Exodus. The big takeaway in terms of the kingdom is that the people have a king. So we go back to our next slide. What we've got here is the people of Israel, people of God, have their kingdom expectation and anticipation rising. God has announced who he is. God has announced what he's going to do, the kind of God that he is. And as time has gone and we've got this anticipation is starting to rise. And of course, that's the end of the story, right? God comes and he's a king forever and it's, everything's wonderful. Unfortunately not. So we go to the next slide. So even though they wander in the wilderness and actually their anticipation has been set and risen, but unfortunately, they end up wandering 40 years. So you've kind of got now this, this tension already between the anticipation and some of the reality. But of course, God's not done yet. So what do we get next? Next, we come to David's monarchy. So David, King David, um, I've got a couple of scriptures I want to read for you here, and I'll unpack them very quickly. So this is uh, 2 Samuel 7. So this is kind of this, towards the start of David's kingdom. And God says this to the prophet Nathan. He says, The Lord declares to you that Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you, you rest with your ancestors, I'll raise up an offspring to succeed you. Your own flesh and blood, I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house in my name and I'll establish the throne of my kingdom forever. I'll be his father and he'll be my son. When he does wrong, I'll punish him with a rod wielded by men, by floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Before me, your throne will be established forever. So I'm not going to get into detail on that, because there's some interesting things about how much of that is, is foreshadowing what's to come. Um, and by the way, I say at this point, when we go through these, try and imagine you're an Israelite, not a Christian post-Jesus. So try and imagine this is what's happening, because... As you go through some of these scriptures I'm going to show you, you'll know what's going on. But actually, they necessarily didn't know exactly what's going on. So what they're telling you here, 
through prophet Nathan is David setting up the kingdom of God and starting to describe what it's going to look like. Um, so if we move on to the next part, because actually when it talks about the son, it was also talking about his son Solomon, David's literal son Solomon. So we jump ahead a little bit to 1 Kings 4, and here we have a description of the kingdom of God as under David and then Solomon's rule. And it says this, So King Solomon ruled over all Israel. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and were merry. Solomon's daily provisions were 30 cores of the finest flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 head of stall-fed cattle, 20 of pasture-fed cattle, and 100 sheep and goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebucks, and choice fowl. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel lived in safety. Everyone under his own vine, under their own fig tree. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for chariot horses and 12,000 horses. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of the people of the East and greater than the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else, including Ethan the Ezraite. He spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life. He spoke about animals, birds, reptiles and fish. From nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom. So what we've got here um, is moving on from the Exodus, so people have understood that, who the king is. And in that previous prophecy from Nathan, he said, I'm going to build my kingdom, which is going to last forever, under you and your son Solomon. And this is what the king looks like, kingdom looks like. So anticipation is starting to build. Um, and there's some really interesting things I just wanted to point out in here, which I didn't realize when I was studying. So can you sorry, go back one slide really quickly, thanks. So the interesting one, they ate, they drank, and were merry. I don't know about you, but when I read that this week, kind of in this passage, I was convinced that was like some modern kind of hedonistic description. Um, that that's, you know, what, what people just want to get from life. I actually found out that's from scripture. So actually that is a description of what the kingdom looks like. Living in the kingdom is to eat, drink, and be merry. And I found that kind of fun. Um, <laughs> What's also really interesting, you also find it in Ecclesiastes, which people um, think is probably written by Solomon, which means Solomon was describing his own kingdom, which also <laughs> explains something else, which I find entertaining. So the other bit I've uh, put in there about songs numbered 1,005, I just sort of imagine the scene where Solomon, someone's saying to Solomon, like, oh, I'm just writing down, how many songs is it, like 1,000? And he's like, 1,005, actually, it's kind of unnecessary detail. Um, I also enjoy the reference to Ethan the Ezraite, as if, like, if you're not as wise as Ethan, are you? And you're like, Ethan's got nothing on me. So, um, but it's such a glorious picture of what the kingdom of God looks like when it comes to earth. It's a very physical, so Derek Morphew in his book says, it demonstrates the kingdom is not this ethereal, you know, spiritual in the withdrawn sense of the word, but actually when it comes to earth, it's very physical, it's in our day-to-day lives. And this is what the pinnacle of the kingdom has looked like so far in the history of the Israelites. So if we move on a bit again, um, so this is now where it's looking like. So we have the Exodus, and God announced who he was and who he was going to be for them, and suddenly they're like, this is amazing. We have a king who's going to sovereign, who's going to win everything. And then they go wandering for a while, and it doesn't quite work out the way expected. But then David comes along with a prophecy, um, and the kingdoms of Solomon and David come, and they look glorious, and they're amazing, and the Israelites live in it. And they ate, drank, and were merry. And again, as we all know, that's the end of it, right? 
Not quite. So what happens after that, unfortunately, is Solomon, if we go into the next slide, Solomon wanders from God um, and the kingdom kind of falls apart and it doesn't quite look the way they thought it was going to again. But having said all that, the anticipation is still rising. They've still seen from God what the kingdom of God could look like and what it does look like when it comes to earth. So we jump forward again. And this time we come to Isaiah. So I'm hopefully going to say, in terms of explanation, even less on this, because Karen, I believe, is going to speak to us about this in a few weeks' time, and she's going to do, I'm sure, an incredible job. So I do want to read to you three scriptures, though, um, just prophecies from Isaiah about the kingdom of God, about the coming king, about the promise of the king in Isaiah. Um, so things aren't going particularly well. The, the, the Israel has been split into Israel and Judah, um, and this is what Isaiah is prophesying into. So this is what he's now describing, that when the king, kingdom comes again, when the king comes again, this is what it's going to look like. And I said, I'm not going to go into any more detail, but I've highlighted a few things just to notice what is already repeating from the Exodus and the Davidic stories. What themes are already coming true and repeating again, saying this is what the kingdom looks like. So like I said, I'm just going to read this, and there's two others, um, some are more familiar but again, just when you get the sense of what is building here, what is building throughout the story of the Old Testament, what is building in terms of anticipation of when the kingdom comes, what is it going to be like, and what is it going to look like? So the first one says this, this is the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 9, 2-7. And it says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there'll be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And the next one, this one's from Isaiah 11, 1 to 9, it says this. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes, but decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness will judge the needy. With justice he'll give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. And in the last one, so this is one again, Isaiah, later on in Isaiah 61. The sovereign Lord, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, the day of vengeance to our God, for comfort for all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, planting of the Lord for the display of his splendour. I mean, even this morning, um, we have actually sung words which have come from these passages. So if you ever get in that place where you think the things that we sing sound a bit pie in the sky, where are they coming from? I don't know why I can trust these. The reason you can is because this is where they come from. 
They come from the Old Testament promises of what the kingdom is like, what it's going to look like, and what it is like. So I said, I don't want to say any more than that except to notice what are the building themes, what are the recurring themes. And again, forget you know about Jesus at this point. Imagine you're an Israelite. Again, you're in a broken kingdom. Like Israel is broken. They're in captivity, and you're hearing Isaiah prophesy these things. Imagine the anticipation. Imagine what's happening inside you. So then finally we move on to, so yes, so that's what it's looking like. So we've got the Exodus, who God is, the God is the king. The Davidic monarchy, what the kingdom looks like. Isaiah's message, which is a promise of the king and the kingdom coming back. And that's a, that's a huge one, jumping up. And of course, what we know then is after that, everything was awesome, right? Unfortunately not. So after that, Jerusalem gets destroyed. So this is a really interesting thing that's already happening here. The anticipation is undoubtedly rising, but it's being met consistently with um, not what exactly they expected. So then we come on lastly to Daniel, Clash of Kingdoms. And again, this is a theme which someone else is going to pick up in a lot more detail than me. But I wanted to cover off you for you two Daniel has two, well, Daniel interprets one vision and has another vision himself in the book of Daniel. And again, I want to read them out. Um, and again, similar to the Isaiah passage, I'm not actually going to say all that much, but I want you to hear what is being repeated, how often the word kingdom's coming up, how the word kingdom's being described. And imagine this is hundreds, if not thousands of years on from Exodus. So all these things are repeating. All these things are coming to God's people about this is what the kingdom of God is going to be like when it fully comes. Um, and it says, this is uh, Daniel 2. So this is Daniel interpreting King Nebuchadnezzar's, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, sorry, his vision and his dream. And he says to Nebuchadnezzar, after you, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. And after that, a third age of bronze. Bronze will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there'll be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break the, that of all the others. In the time of those kings, the king God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those other kingdoms and bring them to an end. It itself will endure forever. So again, there's loads of unlike, interpretation of what that means, which I'm not going to go into, but you can see the message that's being said here. When the kingdom of God comes, it's going to go up against the other kingdoms and it is going to win. And then we come later on in Daniel. Daniel has his own vision and the kind of duplication of, of four, four kingdoms. This time it's four beasts. But we've got some more information here. So I'll read this one out. So this is Daniel's vision. And Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each from the others, came out from the sea. I kept looking until the fourth beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of all their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Again, these are completely different books 
of our Old Testament, of our scriptures. But the themes are coming back again. And again, I've said it a few times, we kind of know where some of this is going, but they didn't. They were just getting this anticipation. And this is starting to talk about how it's going to happen. And the big difference here in the Daniel expectation from the others is this, like I said, this is almost more of the how. So as I was painting the picture of what it's going to look like, and when you get to Daniel, you suddenly get actually some quite dramatic pictures of how it's going to happen. It's not going to be necessarily, um, I don't want to say it's not going to be pretty, but it talks about a clash of kingdoms. Things are going to come together, but the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, the one which has been referred to all along, which is never going to end, is going to win and destroy the others. Um, when I was thinking about this, I um, so I said actually, as my job, um, I'm a researcher, and I was doing some research with some young people a few months ago, and uh, we were talking to them about some of the challenges they were going through in life and how they could be overcome. And there was one girl who um, we were asking that second question of what, what solutions. So I work for a youth charity as well, and what what things can youth groups do to help you overcome these things? And she just sort of said nothing. I need the world to be destroyed and started again. And uh, I was sort of in professional mindset, I guess. So I remember looking at the people I was with, looking at each other, being like, that's actually a really sad answer because that's not going to happen. You're just going to have to cope. And then when I was reading this, I thought, well, actually, no, that is actually, you know, in a different world, maybe I would have said, well, let me show you Daniel. Um, But I just had a totally different resonance. Actually, that's exactly what God is going to do. you know, I'm not getting into exactly how, what it's going to look like as such, but this is saying that's what God's going to do. God's not going to make small changes to our current world. He's going to bring his kingdom and completely destroy the kingdoms of death and evil and all the other kingdoms. It's not going to be a kind of uh, charity or a um, social justice mission, although I'm totally pro both of those things and for different reasons. It's a kettle of worms. But the main point <laughs> is that that is actually how this is going to happen. This is what God is going to do. So if we go then to our very, very quick run through most of the Old Testament, we have Exodus and the kingdom has a king and this is who the king is and he's sovereign over everything, over everyone and he is Israel's king and he is with Israel and with us. And it doesn't quite work out the way they planned but then you get David's monarchy and the prophecy and the expectation that from David's kingdom and the kingdom which was on earth and how wonderful it was and how prosperous it was that's what the kingdom is going to look like and that doesn't quite go the way maybe they expected and you've got Isaiah saying no no, no it's actually going to be even better when it comes than David's kingdom um, and that doesn't even go to plan right then but then you've got Daniel's promise to actually it's because when it finally comes the old kingdoms all the other kingdoms are going to be completely destroyed um, and then what happens after that God goes quiet for 400 years. So I've sort of skipped over the rest of the end of the Old Testament, but you get the sort of the so-called intertestament period where the kind of understanding is about 400 years of time before then Jesus, where nothing seems to happen, no scripture seems to have been written. And again, not going to get into the details of that, but this is what's happened. So, but each time the watermark has risen, each time the anticipation of when this thing happens, these are some of the things it's going to look like. Okay, so this is where it's all going to go wrong. So, some of you probably know what's about to happen next. Um, Can you go to my next slide? I want to see if I've done it right. Yeah, there we go. So, 
So then we've got the but then. So after 400 years, what happens is Jesus comes back, or comes, sorry, or comes back, depending on how you look at it. Jesus comes in human form, and at the start of his ministry, he says, the time is fulfilled. Time meaning all of that expectation has been fulfilled. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That worked, that worked all right. Yeah, so if you've not been able to buy any Diet Coke or Mentos in Balambututing area this week, it's because I've been trying that a few hundred times. Um, um, but that's, it. that's what Mark 1.15 means. That's the fulfillment, or Jesus' words say, that's the fulfillment of all of this expectation of who God is, of what the kingdom looks like, of what the kingdom is going to look like in its fullness, and how the kingdom is going to come. Okay, so now I've kind of uh, fixed your eyes. Let's show that that, uh, eye test slide again. See, I've just, God's just healed all of your eyes. It's a miracle. Hallelujah. So, right, let's try it again. Let's read from the bottom this time, just because that's the way it goes chronologically. So let's read the bottom line. Who can read the bottom line? And the... Next one up. <laughs> and the next one. And the next one. And the last one. So like Steve said last week, if you want to look for the kingdom in the Old Testament, and by the way, I haven't even got to all the awesome stuff which is coming the week after me, or when we get into the New Testament anyway, But this is what it means to see clearly the kingdom through the Old Testament and see clearly the announcement of Jesus. Okay, so I said that's all of the the information, if if that's the right word. And if we can go back one slide, that's the almost image I'd love, one of the images I'd love you to take away from this. Don't worry if you can't remember all the stuff that I said, but just the building expectation throughout the Old Testament. That's what we're getting. So if we jump forward. So I said this is where... uh, we get a bit more personal. And um, this uh, is, imagine that graph again, but let's take off those, those particular labels and just get the pattern. I don't know about you, but that pattern looks like the Christian life. Um, we get these amazing breakthroughs of the kingdom in our lives, followed by things we didn't quite expect the way they were going to go. Um... And so there's so many people nodding. I'm like, gosh, must be on to something here. Um, no. Um, and I think, yeah, this is, I've, I've been wrestling with this part of the message for a while, so I'm just going to see how I go with it. But um, as I was thinking about it, I think there's a couple of ways, well, there's many ways, but there's two opposing ways we can, we can handle this. Um, if there had been a subtitle to my message, it would have been, um, anticipation of the kingdom, the promise and the pain. 
Um, and I think there are two ways, well, like I said, there are two opposite ways that possibly we could respond, which is the next slide. So we could be so blinded by the promise that the pain then devastates us. Or we could be so disappointed by the pain that the promise no longer animates us. And just so you're clear, I'm not, I'm not, by the first one, I really wrestled with that word blinded because it's not to say the promises aren't true. It's to say we get so um, focused on those upwards, up parts, that actually when it doesn't quite go, the promise doesn't re get realized the way we expected, it devastates us. So the reason this is so kind of hurts, if I'm totally honest, for me is, is I mean, a couple of stories. So one, kind of one of my closest friends, um, He's a Christian and his wife was a Christian and um, his wife's mum got cancer. And, uh, you know, they were, the, I'd never met the family, but I know from my friend that they were wonderful, um, wonderful Christians and they fully believed, they fully, fully believed that God would heal her. And um, the, my friend's wife, and they prayed and they prayed and they did the things which obviously we are called to do. Um, but tragically, she wasn't healed and she died. And uh, as unless something dra hopefully drastic has changed, but to my knowledge, because of that, my friend's wife is not no, not longer no longer a Christian. But she can't even contemplate the idea of God. And there's so much complexity in that story. But that's what hurts me so much when that happens. And it's so complicated. And I don't I don't know the answers to that. Um, there's someone else uh, in our home group close to home who said to us not long ago that because of her own, some of her own challenges with health, um, that even though she knew some of the promises of God, she almost felt that she needed more from God. And again, so, so complicated, but every time I hear that, it's so painful. And, and, and the absolute last thing we want that to do is to devastate her faith or anyone's faith. And I think on a slightly different level on this one as well is in another way it's almost to look at the anticipation that we've gone through is when we think of Judas, how do we think of Judas? Do we think he was a complete, you know, just complete idiot, made a massive, well he obviously did make a massive mistake, but was completely ill-informed. But put Judas on the end of that anticipation of the Old Testament in Jesus' words, sort of trying to tread lightly here, but you think you know what I'm getting at, is like, you can almost understand why he had a really fixed idea of, well, actually, when Jesus comes and he's just declared the kingdom here, from his mind, that means, for example, from the Daniel passage, that he's going to completely destroy the Roman Empire and they're going to be gone just like that. And when it didn't happen, it completely devastated him. He completely betrayed Jesus. And it's just so... Devastating when that happens. But I don't want to finish on that one because the other side is equally not the response, which is probably a bit more of the history of my own faith before maybe I kind of came back here or back to, to a vineyard-like church, which is we can be so disappointed by the pain that the promise no longer animates us. So we can be so focused on those things that aren't working well. We no longer seek the kingdom in the lives of others. We no longer come to God and seek and pray and ask and beg and mourn and fast for the kingdom to break into our situations. Um, 
And if I am honest, I will err towards that second one. And I'll say, well, actually, you know, I've prayed for, it's still a new thing for me, but I pray for hundreds of people. That's a bit strong. I pray for tens of people in the church for healing. And I've maybe seen a couple. And I've been healed in this church. But I've seen so many that haven't been. And it's really easy for me to stop praying for God to break in in that particular way. But that is just not how it's supposed to be. That's not the right way either. So the last thing I was just going to say is how I couldn't end the sermon really sorry without giving you some idea of how we find that balance. And there will be another sermon in the line about how the, the now and not yet kingdom. However, I just want, do want to say one thing. So one thing how we do it is I've been reading a lot of 1 Peter at the moment. And uh, did, some of you might know this verse, which says this, In your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason you have, for the hope that you have. But as I've been reading kind of 1 Peter all the way through each time, 1 Peter is all about living in suffering and living in hardship. It's to the exiled Christians. And in that context, it has a slightly different line on it, which is how are you going to have give a reason for your hope in those hard times? Um, who else has, again, if you've been around church for a while, you know the verse, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. It's an amazing verse. I don't know how many of you know which book it comes from, but it comes slap bang in a book of lamentations. And uh, let me read to you the verses which almost immediately sort of couple before that verse come. And the, the, the writer of lamentations says... I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. My splendor is gone and all that I hope for from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I remember them and my soul is downcast within me. But wait for it. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. And why can he say that, or she? I don't know who wrote Lamentations. We don't know. What reason do you have for the hope in those hard times? And the reason I want to leave you this morning is the Old Testament narrative. Because yes, there were ups and downs, but God was always moving. God was always breaking in. God was always giving promises which... Again, trying to not go too far forward, but some of those promises have already come true in the ministry of Jesus. So this is my kind of last, last line and last little picture story for you, is what's the reason for the hope that you have? Uh, when I was preparing this, you kind of almost get new eyes and you see new images that God might be saying to you or things you can use. And I was on the tube and I saw this guy um, and he, was, he had literally in his hands maybe like 20 or 30 like fill this in and win a gold bar and he was just putting his name on every single one of them and it was just like that's where he's putting his hope in chance in luck that he might win a gold bar but I want to give you a different answer of where the reason you have your hope in those hard times which is the story of the kingdom and the promise of the kingdom and the fulfillment of the kingdom in both the old testament and the new So I'll invite the band <laughs> up now. And I, I'm going to say two things. I would love us to pray for two types of people this morning. 
Um, one thing we don't often get to pray for, people that, you know, those of us who enjoy praying for other people, is people who are in what I'm going to call a period of promise. People who are seeing a big breakthrough, or breakthroughs in their lives in healing, in wisdom, in providence, in whatever it is, a breakthrough of those kingdom. And we don't get to celebrate with people. We don't get to ask for God to bring it more. And so I would love, uh, if you want to, people to come up and share stories with us and say, let's pray for more. Let's pray for the kingdom to break in more. And then obviously I would also love anyone who's in a period of pain to come. And while we are praying, if we can get that second eye test slide up, I would love people to pray over those people, the promises of the Old Testament. Like word for word, if, if that's what feels right. Um, pray those promises in their situation, that these things are still true no matter where you're at right now, and God will break in. So yeah, that's where I'll leave you. What's the reason for your hope? Make it the promise of the kingdom.